So, welcome to the May 2014 episode of Behind the DM Screen. Three DMs getting together to talk about their games and help each other make them better. I'm Jeff. I'm Mike. And I'm Sam. See that? We did intros. I didn't even warn them we were going to do you intros. We never me. do intros, and they I still caught on. I'm Mike. Professionals. We're professionals. <laughs> so, um, that's the intro. I'm first. Ooh, I should, speaking of professional, I should have the timer up. All right, you keep using that word, clock. and I don't think you know what that word means. And I'm going to go... <laughs> Quiet, you. So, um, I created and ran my Fate Core game, uh, where the players played gods after um, we talked about it last month, and then Mike and I and uh, one of the designers of Fate Core got together, and they all sort of walked me through the idea of putting together the game, and I ran it. And it was kind of meh, honestly. Really? Yeah, it wasn't. Ah. It wasn't the the slant. I, I don't think it was a bad session. It was. I think the problem was is they they struggled a lot. It sort of tr- became a mystery. You know, this thing is happening. You figure out what what's going on and, and solve it. And they just felt like they were getting nowhere for too long. And I'm like, I was very careful to make sure you were making slow progress. You know, parsing out the 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 reveals. As we went along, but I, th- I think it was slow enough that they just felt like it was slow. I think what I needed to do was um, prepare for action more. There was very little yeah. action, and I wasn't prepared for action. And it's like, well, how much action can you have when it's gods? And, uh, you know, so that's what I should have done is I should have prepared for action, and I wasn't prepared for action. So there's very little of it. Mm. So that was my experience with Fate Core. And several of them um, who were at that one and the Aeon Wave – Said that they, I think they enjoyed the Aeon Wave game a lot more. Yay! Yeah. One of my <laughs> players actually said that after six years of playing together, he he thought the most fun session we've ever had was playing Aeon Wave. Yay! So this is the best behind the DM screen. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, that was that was Fate Core. Um, I think we'll probably set it aside for a little while now and i and the next plan is to move and and do one last fourth edition game ooh we're going to break out eberron because we've never played eberron and we bought you know a bunch of us were always interested in it we you know a bunch of us bought all the books and everything so we've got all the eberron stuff but we never actually used it so we're going to break out eberron i'm going to convert a third edition adventure that i reviewed on a uh, the pdf mini reviews episode a couple months back now um, uh, called Eyes of the Lich Queen. So I'm just going to take that and convert it over to 4th Ed because 4th Ed, like I don't feel like there's much conversion. Make 4th Edition characters and I will just take the 4th Edition version stats for all those monsters because the, the library of of 4th Edition monsters is huge. You know? Uh, if I need to take something and bump it up a level or down a level or whatever, there's tools to do that. So that's not hard. Mm. Um, so, I, so that's the plan is we're going to run 4th Edition Eberron. Uh, Eyes of the Lich Queen, which is an there's adventure. A, uh, I, we'll say it again. There's a, a fourth edition Eberron. I think it's an Eberron adventure called Seekers of the Ashen Crown. Mm-hmm. Is that right? It sounds familiar. Yeah. Um, that would already be for fourth edition. Is that Eberron or is that Dark? I, I, th- I think it's Eberron, isn't it? I don't remember. Maybe I'm wrong. I could. Well, be wrong. I I have a, a desire to run. Yeah, it's um, Eberron. 
I have a desire he to run to Eyes run, of the Lich Queen. He actually Queen. wants to run the Lich Queen. Yeah, though. yeah, right, and that's a cool one. Yeah, so I, 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 I was a player in it in one of my first. I sort of had a lull in in face to face D and D games for several years after college, and I always sort of wanted to find one. And this was the adventure that I ran when I first got it, found a new group. Uh, and then we got through like chapter one and then the DM was going to take a break and let me take over for a while. And we were just going to trade back and forth. And while I took over, um, his life situation changed and he left and we never finished Eyes of the Lich Queen. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I kind of want to play it out to its conclusion. I've, and I've now read it and reviewed it and, and I see where it was going. Um, and I think it's a really cool adventure. So I kind of want to go back and, and visit, revisit that. And I, and I don't think the conversion is going to be particularly time consuming. So. Uh, my the thing that I think is time consuming that I'm worried about is fourth edition combat. <laughs> um, by, by the way, just a, a a plug for for the site. Um, Eyes of the Lich Queen is available on dndclassics.com through the link. <laughs> yes, on thetomeshow.com. Yeah. It is, yep, and it is where it I... is for Eberron. You were right about that. So, of course, I am. Yeah. So, um, yeah. Anyway. <laughs> so here's a, here's the thing. I want to incorporate. I want to incorporate some house rules. I want to incorporate some some not restrictions, but some guidance mm-hmm. um, for character creation and that kind of stuff, and, and all this kind of all that kind of stuff to try to help speed up combat. I'm curious what you guys think might be effective. Suggestions for helping speed up fourth edition combat because that is the one thing that has me hesitant to going back to fourth edition is the is the speed of combat. And maybe I'm extra gun shy because the last time I played fourth ed was you know the end of the one to thirty campaign and we were super epic yeah, here at that point right. and combats were you know six hours long. So I'll let, I'll let Sam go first. The, the, the quickest, um, the, the the easiest way that I have ever done it was uh, cut creature hit points in half or into a third mm-hmm. and uh, increase their damage output. Mm-hmm. Yep. That's yeah. That's a trick I used a lot. And and that's 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 pretty much all I do. Uh, the other thing is I I sort of look at what I what I did was I would look at a battle and if the battle was solely to get XP so that the characters could you know especially in a published uh, product yeah. if the battle was to get XP to move it on then you don't need to have that battle right. <laughs> You know and I, mean? I abandoned XP ages ago, yeah. so that's not an issue, right? Exactly, and that's the you know, and that's why. So, um, I I really when I when I was converting, you know, if I ever converted something, or a lot of times I would steal little pieces from other places, and you know, that's sort of part of it is looking at it and saying, well, you know, if you you're only going to get like one or two combats per session, so they better be worthwhile. So make them really awesome, or make them extremely quick. So quick means deadly. Right. Right. So, Mike, your turn. Uh, so, I have. Prob- so, my biggest recommendation, and this is uh, filled with controversy, and you can both uh, give me the raspberry. Um, there's, there's, there's two things. One is if you don't let it go higher than level ten, that's a good way to reduce things. Stick to you know, stick to heroic tier. Yeah, and um, and, and the adventure doesn't really get. I mean, I think the adventure when it was in third ed. Oh, I know. I want to look it up. Yeah, it's five to ten. Five to ten. Yeah, so. but it's five to ten in third, which is a little. It's more like. Yeah, and I was trying to figure out how I wanted to convert that to fourth, and I don't right. know. I was thinking maybe you go six ten. Right. And call right. it good enough. 
Um, yeah, I, you, I mean, you could probably start lower than that. You could start at fourth because they're so powerful. Yeah. You know, That's fourth true. edition, four, four E characters are so much tougher than, than normal. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, and I'm, I'm a huge proponent for limiting options to stuff from essentials and, and forward. I think mm-hmm. that the, the character, the design of every power, the design of every rule, the design of every feat, you, from essentials and up and beyond, you know, essentials plus, mm-hmm. um, is far better designed than everything that came up before. Mm-hmm. And, and designed specifically for faster play, faster options, you know, fewer, you know, fewer, like, between round kind of options that people had. Um, and, and, and that's, and it'll drive like your traditional 40 players crazy that they can't have their shard mind, battle mind, wicker Mm man. Right. And so, and so here's what I've done to, to sort of, um, find a, a middle ground between those two stances of, of this is all you can play. And, but this is, I want to have the kitchen sink sort of people. Uh, what I've done is I have in the past, I have set things up to encourage, but not restrict. So, you know, we're playing in... Uh, it was Madness of Gardenmore Abbey I did this. And I said, okay, we're playing in this setting and these are the, the sort of standard things and whatever. And if you set, take uh, an Essentials um, class or, or you know, one of these races or whatever, I'll, uh, you know, you'll get a bonus feat or a bonus item to start with it's or whatever. Yeah. Uh, and that yeah. way it's like, well, if you, if you do this, then bonus you, yay. If you don't, then... Yeah, they're not well, weaker. No, 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 they're, no not. they're not. I, you know, the essentials the, guys are tough. Yeah, I mean, the, the thing that I would do, even if you um, if you want to do a uh, a thing where you you uh, promote and reward rather than penalize and punish, mm-hmm. uh, you, I would still draw the line at a rune priest. No rune priests, because <laughs> um, e- e- even if somebody decides, whoa, hold on, there's a giant bee in our house. Um, <laughs> if somebody decides there's a giant bee there's in the house, what? <laughs> That's yeah. the fourth edition Nerf beer and B. <laughs> it's angry, angry with your anti. But see, I could pick like five classes that are broke. Sure, you know the sword mage. But again, a lot of them are only broke when you get to the higher levels, anyway. So and arguably the ranger, right? But yeah, right. You just ban twin strike. Um, <laughs> And then when they get really upset about the fact that you banned Twin Strike, then you question why they're so upset and tell them that that's proof that it was broken. Um, <laughs> okay, sorry. I think the problem has been solved. <laughs> the B issue is taken care of. Um, but, you know, I, I think there are, there are at least two classes I would – yeah, yeah. I think this is what you were saying when I was gone. The B is now deceased. <laughs> um is uh, the room priest in particular, and pretty much, um, I don't know. Yeah, you were saying ranger, twin strike. Yeah, yeah, that's, uh, it doesn't. Yeah, I don't know. It gets really out of hand later, but it's not so bad below ten. Mm. It's really when crits and stuff start going crazy. Um, one thing to consider though is you could actually sit down with the group and say, like, let's let's instead of kind of everybody just picking whatever race and class combination they want. What if, as a group, you said these are going to be a set of races and a set of classes that we're going to play with that makes sense for this particular campaign? And then once the group overall has decided what that list is, then people can pick from the list. And that kind of brings them in to decide, okay, these are the sorts of character options that make sense for this world rather Mm -hmm. than the world is, you know, well, I get to play my mall you know, mall gladiator. Mm -hmm. Well, (laughs) you know, it's Eberron. Where the hell did he come from? Right. You know, my Thrykreen Sionist. Yeah, and that's, I mean, 
I had had a little bit of pushback. At one point, I even talked about, why don't I just make pre-gens, and Uh, then you guys can select from the 10 characters I made or whatever, and there was pushback on that, because part of the reason some of these guys want to go back to 4th Ed is they really like the the min-maxing and the optimizing and all that. Mm -hmm. And now they've sort of all gone to a point where two guys sort of volunteered, well, why don't you just tell me what you want? And Because a lot of them don't have uh, the account anymore to have access to the character builder. Mm-hmm. So the two guys that still do are like, well, <laughs> you just tell me what you want and we'll build them for you. Except that they're both the rules lawyers. You know? Yeah. And so <laughs> I'm going to have a whole party of optimized characters and then these guys lean over and tell them, no, 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 you're playing it wrong. This is how you, this is how you, you, know, you know, get the most bang for your buck. Right. So I'm a little worried about that. But that, you know, maybe that will just speed up combat, right? <laughs> I am. Yeah. I'm less worried about balance. I've dealt with 4th edition enough um, to, to deal with the balance and I can handle that. Uh, I'm just – no matter what I did, and we went, you know, I, we did whole episodes on speeding up combat in, in fourth edition, right? So this is not new, a new area of thinking for me. Um, but what I am a little more willing to do, I think, is hack the system. Whereas when I first ran through it, I didn't want to do a lot of changing because I was, you know, reviewing things or whatever, and I wanted to sort of see what 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 it was meant to run as. Um, Look, I'm a little more I willing to hack it, you know. I'm a little more willing to e- take things like like the the escalation dies um, and add well, that into what, it. That's exactly what I was going to say. Was cut the monster HP way down, in, increase their damage output, and throw in an escalation die, and don't worry about anything else. I mean, that's going to speed up combat. So, and and anywhere where there's um, a ton of monsters, make sure that they're minions. Mm-hmm. Part of me is also just sort of thinking that I just have to get used to the fact that, yes, we've been playing a lot of D&D Next and we've been getting through a dozen encounters a night and that's just not going to happen anymore, you know? Mm-hmm. So not not to be like the, the religious nut, but have you considered 13th Age? Uh, you know what? I hadn't considered 13th, 13th Age. I tell you, for my, four, on, my 4E it, players, love it. What, I think it was the, the was it DM Appreciation Day. It was on sale for like five bucks, so oh. I bought it. Oh, it's so good. Um, that it, said... It, you could easily wrap it around. Well, that said, the Everyone. whole point of us doing this adventure and do, oh, doing this campaign yeah. was they wanted to do one last hurrah okay. with 4th edition. Sure, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So. yeah, right. So we may still go to check out 13th Age at some point, but... I, the, the the whole idea of this thing is is yeah fourth ed so right that makes sense but that's why I say you know if that if that's the case then you don't want to limit them because that's the whole reason they right. want to play it again is because they don't want the limits which is mm-hmm. why I, I'm more so, inclined to encourage yeah. rather than limit right and and that's why I say just take care of it by adjusting monsters and let them know you know these monsters the damage output is really high you know the, these are deadly mm-hmm. you yeah know? so the, there are things you can do sorry Sam. Go ahead. I was just uh, going to say, you know, in general, you know, fourth edition is not seen as the deadly edition, but you can tell them, look, you know, in order to make these combats go a little smoother and faster, I've made a few tweaks. So expect some deadliness. Mm-hmm. Well, I was doing that in by the end of our one to thirty right. campaign. Yeah, too, so but I, I make it more extreme, though. Yeah. So one 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 tip on the DM side that you can do that doesn't hurt them at all, but certainly makes sure that the the speed is there and that the threat is there is. Sticking to monsters from the Monster Vault, the Monster Vault 2, uh, the Monster Manual 3, and the um, Dark Sun creature catalog. Those, those, are, they're, those monsters are far better designed than anything before. Mm-hmm. And you can reskin them into any of the stuff that's in the, the book. Like you can just 
you know, change change the flavor to fit whatever was in the adventure. Yeah. But use stats they, from those books, and they're far they're far better designed. Well, the other thing I was going to say though is that when you start getting into creatures that have a lot of special abilities and special powers, you add time on your side too. So right. only give lots of special things to the sort of big bads. That's mm-hmm. why I mentioned minions because you can have mm. you know. Lots of minions that have, you know, they do like one attack or maybe they have one special move, you know, and that's it. And you don't have to worry about, oh, did I forget to use this guy's encounter power and all that kind of crap, right? Mm -hmm. And your brain space is more free so you can hurry the combat along. And the only creature that's on the table that you control that has a lot of powers is maybe one or two, you know, big bad kind of more devastating creatures. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, just use, you know, things that don't have a lot of special gidgets and gadgets. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I mean, if and you hearing you guys talk, I was also reminded of you know, speaking of old advice because we've been talking about it speeding up fourth edition since it came out. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, inherent bonuses, I had to remember to mm-hmm. to make that yeah. part of the yeah yeah the character creation much easier. Yeah. But yeah, Sam, I, I agree with you, and I think one thing you I find so I actually find it particularly with the monster vault, the, just the regular monster vault, is that this book alone, the the monsters are really designed to be run quickly and mm-hmm. yet still be pretty devastating. So like a lot of their effects, you know, you if you look at the Dracolich in the Monster Manual 1 and the Dracolich in this one, you know, they're night and day as far as yeah. ease of running and as far as being a fun thing to fight. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, my time yeah. is long over, so we will move along. Uh, it is... Oh, and before we move along, I should remind people, uh, dndclassics.com, if you're going to buy D&D PDFs, uh, and Amazon, if you're going to buy everything else in the world, if you go through thetomeshow.com and click on our links, uh, that helps us, you know, get a little kickback and pay our bills. So there's your your, you know, <laughs> ad for the night. Mike, you're up. All right, I've got my list of things to talk about. Uh, so I've been running my thirteenth age game. Um, I've run a few games since our last um, since our last talk. I've also run Numenera and I ran Fate. Um, Dungeons of Fate at a convention called 1D4Con that was that was nearby. Um, so I've I've gotten my fair share of of D and D in. Um, my Moonwreck game has has continued to be kind of an open ended game. The, the the players are deciding much of the direction that they want to go. Uh, I have sort of these dungeon world fronts, which are these four main groups that are all on their own timetable performing their evil deeds and the party has to decide which one of them they want to kind of stop uh they this sort of open-ended nature has been kind of interesting i think for both the players and myself because they've often changed course you know 180 degrees from where they went and it makes me scramble quite a bit to make sure that i'm still building fun and interesting adventures from night to night uh without necessarily knowing what direction they're going to go um, most recently, they went to a, a place known as the City of Lost Temples, which is this ruined city filled with you know temples to many different gods. They went down into one of the temples and uh, found a dark, uh, what was originally referred to as an obex. Uh, the problem that we ran into is there was more than one, and none of us could figure out what the plural of obex is. <laughs> so Obexes. in order to solve this, obeses, yeah, uh, to solve this problem, a great sage walked into the city named Lord Retcon, and Lord Lord Retcon opened his giant leather tome and spoke aloud the words that from now on it has always been and will always be the obelisk, and that made it much easier than everybody said. Ah, oh, 
you know, obelisk is easy. Obelisks is easy. And uh, Lord Retcon also changed the names of a few NPCs, and then he closed his giant leather-bound book and disappeared. <laughs> so I highly recommend that Lord Retcon enter your game because uh, he makes life much easier. Um, so it's been fun uh, to uh, you know leave lots of directions, and I and I've been following this idea which I call three plus infinite choices, where you kind of say here are three main paths you can take, but you can also go anywhere else. And then the players can say, okay, well, now they have some directions that they can choose from, but then they can also, as a group, say, none of those three directions are interesting. We want to go this fourth place, mm-hmm. which is actually how they ended up in the city of Lost Temples. Um, and it's a, you know, it, as a DM, you really have to be, be ready to, to switch paths and come up with something. Um, but that's also kind of fun because you don't really have any idea where it's going to go and the story is really interesting and it kind of, you know, it moves the creative process into the game rather than before the game, which I mm-hmm. like. Uh, one hard part, though, is you still... I still find myself unconsciously, like, projecting directions. So an example was, in the game last night, um, there's one member of the party, a dark elf, who has this artifact that he's holding. And the artifact is the only key that can open up these obelisks. And the obelisks are actually prisons they're both doorways to a Cthulhu-style world of ultimate darkness, but also prisons for creatures that centuries ago the Moon Elves had locked away. Mm-hmm. And they unlocked one of them, which was a Glabrazo. And the Glabrazo escaped and zipped away before they could do anything. And then last night, a bunch of Dark Elves attacked the party. They ambushed the party. And in the middle of the Dark Elf fight, the Glabrazo showed up invisible, uh, impaled the Dark Elf that held this artifact, because the Glabrazo is much more powerful than they were. Um, you know, lifted him up, impaled on his claw, and then his two smaller hands frisked him t- until he found the item, took the item and then threw him on the ground and, and then opened a portal to the dar- a Dark Elf City and disappeared, right? And his goal was, I need that, that thing. And the reason why is he wants to unlock all of his friends. So uh, the trick there is you, I, I'm always really nervous with a scene like that because it seems like you're, you're really forcing the direction, and my intent was he might fail at this. Like, the Glabrazo isn't necessarily going to win here, but he's going to try, right? And it worked out that the, the thief who had the item had separated himself from the party. The Glabrazo, which I had projected the fact that he'd been kind of hanging around, he was this giant invisible shape that they just couldn't get a handle on. And then he became visible as soon as he impaled the rogue. And he was very powerful, so it was easy for him to, in a single hit, knock, knock out the rogue. The problem was I had done so much with that scene that now the whole group is like, well, we have no choice but to go to the Dark Elf City and get that thing back. What I'm trying to say, actually, if you do that, that means the cult of the dark over in this other place is going to get forward with their agenda. So whichever path you choose, the other bad guys are still going to be doing their thing, and you have, mm-hmm. to, you have to decide which way to go. But you know, in talking to, to Michelle about it, she said, well, I still feel like there's far more interesting things that you've described going on with the Dark Elves, so that's obviously where we should go. Where I'm saying, like, well, I don't feel that way. <laughs> like, I'm actually kind of curious what happens if you go over here. So it's hard not to even slightly project what they, what, what the party, what, what the players will believe. Oh, that's obviously the right way. And I think it's because players kind of tend to think there well, must be one path. But right? that actually indicates that you're doing something right, I think. I mean, you've presented them with the array of options and they found one to be particularly interesting. Great. Now you know where to go. And yeah. that wasn't even the one that you wanted to go to. Yeah, that's fine. Like if they say, this sounds really good, I want to go there, I'm fine with that. It sounds like it's that's exactly say, what happened though. 
Well, I'm not sure that it wasn't. Well, there's a little bit of the, I think you want us to go there. Well, my players do that all the time. But that's because that's how they're interpreting it. But that's not actually where you want them to go. No, no. And in fact, I ended up steering away by saying, yeah, but that thing you were going after, that's a lot closer than going to the Dark Elf City. You're going to have to take three weeks to get there. And who knows what they'll do in three weeks. Mm Mm-hmm. So anyway, so that was interesting and you know kind of fun and interesting to to watch how that played out. Uh, last the game a week before, I had a whole plan for what they were going to do, and then one of the players said during I one of the, one of my tricks is I always have the players describe the previous night's adventure to themselves rather than me telling them what happened, mm-hmm. and that way I figure out what they've actually paid attention to, mm-hmm. and one of them said like yeah we got attacked by that Baroness Alexa Lich gal again and i hate her and someday we're gonna have to hunt down her flackerty and kill her and i was like "Ooh, you know turns out you actually receive some intelligence about where the flackerty is right and now you can go and hunt it down so they ended up turning course to go stop her because they were so kind of mad at her and they were like we never have a chance to kill a lich because they're always burying their phylact- their phylacteries off in some hidden part Mm-hmm. Well, she actually buried hers relatively close by because she likes to, you know, reappear nearby so she can keep her ass in the party. And so that entire game was improvised. I, I had no notes. I had no idea what their plan was. And I was able to put together this, you know, quick scenario for the, I think we had three local players and one player that, that used FaceTime to remote in. So it was a smaller party and smaller set of players. And um, that was a pretty wild experience because I said, like, I wrote down three you know, or two three by five note cards worth of notes, and it was too much. Mm-hmm. You know, I ended up not using it. Mm-hmm. So when I thought about like what is valuable when you want to be prepared for these, you know, for improvising a game like that, instead of kind of saying like, okay, here are the scenes, and here's how they're going to play out, and here's the path that they're going to take, it's much more interesting to say what are the appropriate monsters for them to potentially face, and come up with like a shorter list of, you know, ten sets of monsters that they might face just by looking through a monster manual. Um, finding some interesting terrain, which gets into to, to, to maps and um, like laminated maps and, and, and pre-printed maps. Um, a thing that I call the secrets, which is like, what are, the, what are the secret plots and secret things that are going on that the party might uncover one way or another, either by interrogating somebody they fight or by receiving a vision from somebody or by picking up an old piece of parchment that was lying around? What will they learn that kind of progresses forward the you know, their knowledge of what's happening in the world. Uh, And then random charts, particularly for for NPC names, because it's always much more interesting when they run into an NPC and that NPC has a name and a history. Um, So that that worked well for these last couple of games. I've been pretty happy with that. Um, The other interesting thing that I've been trying out is this idea. So in 13th Age, you have the icon roles. Mm -hmm. I think we've talked a lot about that before. I think we and, have talked a lot about that, haven't we? Yeah. So, so one thing that I've been doing with the icon rolls is an icon roll of five is supposed to be a conflicted situation, right? A, conf- a conflicted trigger on whatever that relationship is. And I started using the fives as a way for me and the, and the players to recognize which one of the evil plots are moving forward faster than the others. So, like, if there are four factions and those four factions are tied to, like, the icons that, that the players have, when they roll a five for that particular faction, that faction actually whatever, has gotten closer to whatever its goal is, even if it's on the other side of the planet. And, and that way, like, you know, if, if the three doesn't get rolled for a long time, that means they're kind of stuck. But if the Lich King gets three fives in one session, that means the Lich King made a big 
step forward. Mm. And, and that way, I'm not directing which one of those groups is getting progress. You know, it's being progressed by random chance. Um, How but hackable it makes, do you think the icon system is? Very hackable. So, it's, like, you could, you could, you know, could, you I want to do it right in, in yeah. Mistara and I can yeah. swap out easily, different icons. Easily. Yep. Okay. In fact, if you were like if you were using it with fourth edition, you could actually. One thing I've started doing is I've actually been bringing fourth edition stuff into thirteenth age by giving them action points for sixes. So if they roll sixes on their icon rolls, they get like an, an the equivalent of an action point, which they can use. It's more like a fate point. They can use it for a bunch of different things. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that way, they have this kind of physical representation of this fact that they got this connection. Um, so yeah, you can easily take the icon system and wrap it up on top of, you know, and then like for Eberron, it would work great, right? Because there's lots of different Eberron factions. Mm-hmm. And you don't, like, they have 13 icons in 13th Age, obviously. But you could, like, we're only using six. And it's actually nicer when you limit them down to a set number. So if you, you sit a sto- down... a story you're telling, right? Yeah, right. And when that mm-hmm. way, it's not like every week, you know, an entirely new faction that no one's ever seen before now is the one that's on on the front, you know, in the front line. So it's nicer when, like, most of the players have Lich King as one of theirs, as like a, a, a negative one. So the Lich King comes up a lot, which means I know that, you know, there's probably going to be more emphasis on the Lich King in this campaign than He's some of the other ones. Yeah. But then the three does come up from time to time. The three is one of the other villains. And the three does come up from time to time. So mm-hmm. they came up last week where somebody rolled a six on the three, which meant a good thing for the player. And that <laughs> ended up meaning they walked into a bunch of dead mercenaries that worked for the three and learned some info. You realize how ridiculous it sounds that you got a six on the three? Yeah, I know. Okay. <laughs> yeah, it's all ridiculous. Um, so I, it's I, an I, imaginary game with goblins and dragons. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. We're we're talking about fireballs. Um, so yeah, so I, I like using the I'm I'm using the icon system for a whole lot of stuff now. I actually use it for distributing loot. So right now in Thirteenth Age, loot is sort of balanced around the idea that they don't expect you to get more than like one fancy magic item each level. And remember, the levels in 13th Age are, are much bigger than the levels in other things. Like 1 to 10 is the equivalent of 1 to 30. Um, so you only get like one fancy magic item. And I just am too lazy to figure out what item anybody should have. So when they roll a 6, the first time they roll a 6 on an icon roll at a, any level, they can use that 6 token because they get a token for it. They can use that 6 token to say, I, I've discovered this magic item in this situation. And it's based on this icon. Like, you know, I, I think yesterday uh, one of the players found a bow on one of the people that they had killed. And the bow is like this living wood bow that was made, clearly made under the magical influence of the High Druid. So they kind of add flavor onto this item that they pick. Mm-hmm. They get, a, you know, the players get an item they actually want and like. I don't have to come up with anything. And it's a low magic item sort of system, right? It is. I mean, you're going to end up with a fair bit if you go through a whole 1 to 10. But, I mean, 1 every level is actually not that many. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things that I did when I was doing um, Return to the Temple of Elemental Evil until it got too overwhelming um, that worked really well was I started actually making cards for Mm -hmm. every time they got a magic item. I had a card. It had a picture on it. It had a brief summary of their stats. But I also gave them all a name and... Uh, you know, so magic items felt like something or and then if it was just like a, a potion, well, OK, you drink your potion, tear yeah. that card in half right in front of them. You know, it's gone. 
Well, I actually had a problem with 13th Age where the non-fancy magical items were like, there's only three. There's potions, oils, and runes. And potions are like your typical potions of healing and whatnot. Oils are things that give you like a, a magic bonus on your weapon attack or your magic armor bonus. And then runes give you either a weapon or armor bonus plus some other effect. And the problem was like, I just felt like all I was doing was distributing potions, oils, and runes all the time. Mm. So I actually created a, a a random mundane magic item generator so that it creates 100 crazy random magic items, such as a, and I'm reading off my list here, grimy royal mask that provides limited telekinesis and shines with multicolored light. You know, So they get these sort of one-shot magic items that they can only use once, and it has some sort of effect, and then it's over. So they can get as many of these as they want. Theoretically, actually, you can put some limits on them. Mm -hmm. Um, But then now they're getting this kind of weird, interesting thing. I don't have to figure out what they are ahead of time. I can just roll on the list or have them roll on the list. Mm -hmm. And this was extremely popular with my group. They they were immediately saying like, oh, yeah, I don't want an oil. I want to roll on the 1D100 magic rundane item list, you know, and like you get a grimy, unholy opal that lets you secure a door and covers the user in purple. (laughs) And did you uh, publish that anywhere? Yes, it's on a... uh, if you go to Sly Flourish's random mundane magic item generator. Awesome. I'm not going to link to that, but I'm going to totally check it out. <laughs> oh, you're such a dick. Tell you what, I'll just link to SlyFlourish.com and call it good. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, I gave you, going back to your conversation earlier, um, there's links in our thing here for two articles that I wrote I about speeding up. Okay. Yep. Speeding up. He's still you. not going to link them to the show notes. <laughs> yeah, I saw them there. I'm ignoring that's, them. That's like show notes. <laughs> They're there. <laughs> anyway, I'm having a ball. I'm having a really, good. really good time. Sounds like it's going well. I actually am, am more and more contemplating how and when I might actually get to try some 13th age. Yeah, it's 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 my favorite. So of the, if I think about the two systems that I've been playing a lot, if I had to pick two systems, I love Fate Accelerated for like one-shot games where you want to kind of get into character, but you're really not going to play for a long time, like like the one-shot game you talked about. Mm-hmm. And for any mechanics-heavy fantasy, uh, 13th Age is by far my favorite. And mm-hmm. then we'll see what life is like when next comes out. Well, right, and that's my issue, right, is that once, um, once I'm done with the 4th edition campaign, I'm pretty sure next will have been out for a few months. So yeah. it will be time to, to go on to yeah. that. Well, I have, no, I have no... I'm sure that I'll be playing both 13th Age and next. Right. Indefinitely. But you play a lot more often than I do. Yeah, I play a lot. And I'm entering uh, a, a stretch here where I'm going to be playing less often because I'm doing a study abroad program this summer and it requires uh, yeah. me to give up a bunch of Saturdays. And if I end up playing every other weekend and have those classes, I'm basically not going to be available to my family every Saturday for the next like three <laughs> months. And it turns out that's not okay. So <laughs> I've <Choices>. been told. <laughs> so I'll be playing a little bit less coming up. And so even more so, you know, I, I don't think we'll even be very far into the fourth edition campaign by then. Yep. All right. And Sam, you're up. All right. Okay. Well, I just uh, last Saturday ran the first session of my uh, new campaign. It's a second edition D&D campaign. And all of the uh, PCs are evilly aligned. They're either lawful or neutral evil, no chaotic evil. Uh, And I, uh, I, I... Introduce the characters to the world, which is being – I think I talked about this in, in one of the previous episodes of, of what I was sort of planning. But the, the world is being overrun by uh, this this evil god who wants to take over and 
uh, cause everyone in the world to be his worshippers and um, right. yeah, make it a, a monotheistic world and and also kill all the other gods and convince all of the worshippers that all the other gods are dead, which is why they should worship him and yada, yada, yada for that. Uh, there's all kinds of things wrapped into that. But one of the things that he has to do is make sure that all the elves are exterminated. And, uh, of course, the players haven't don't they don't know that yet because they're they're aren't they're not that high level yet to actually get um you know true uh communication from the gods but they are starting at a relatively i mean they're starting like fourth level um i actually gave them 9000 experience points but uh they're all you know multiclassed so they're all like second third fourth level and multi-classed so they're you know they've got two you know two classes that are second or third level um but uh you know it's going pretty well it, it, it's one of those interesting things where i you know it, it's the it's the problem in any uh evil campaign where you have to give the the pcs a reason to not uh completely backstab each other um that's one of the reasons for having the rule that there's no chaotic evil alignment uh, they all have to be lawful or neutral, and the lawful ones sort of keep the the neutral ones in line, um, and they all work for the same patron. So that patron, you know, doesn't put up with any BS because, of course, he's a completely lawful, evil, high level guy. Um, and so they did some interesting things. They had to go. Uh, uh, so one of the fun things about evil games is you can kind of do things that you, you know, I would never have a character in a good campaign do like it like they go off and the the very first thing they have to do is they have to hop on a ship and and go down with the, with this other uh with the captain of the ship who also works for the for their patron and they have to go steal slaves basically so, well let me steal people to make them slaves so that they can then go give them to their owner or their patron so that he he can then sell them which you know you could never do that with a good aligned party. Mm-hmm. I mean, you just that storyline would be you're trying to destroy the slavers, or if it showed up in the middle of some other mission, it would be a moral quandary whether you took time to free those slaves, or you know what I mean. It would. It's a completely different kind of story. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's it's a little interesting, um, but uh, that that was a very quick thing just to sort of uh, let them know. Yes, you're doing bad stuff and you need to be okay with that because your your people are evil your characters are evil what do you expect you're not going to be you know baking brownies and you know uh, reading to the children in the village um but uh what happened was uh they had to go on their their second mission they had to go uh, on a little journey uh to to try to hunt down the the head of this paladin order and they got about halfway there and they had three or four different uh combats so um, we were talking earlier before for the, for the audience. We were talking before we actually started recording about uh, mapping and, and doing different things. And um, for my second edition game, I'm not using any of the of the so-called like 2.5e you know players options books. So I'm not using tactical combat or anything like that. So I can really quickly just sketch a little you know map on a piece of paper that tells everyone what their relative positions are, and then we go pretty much completely theater of the mind. Um, for the whole game, but uh, they they had these combats, and then they stopped to camp, and they got attacked by some poisonous snakes. And one of the PCs who uh, should not have been in melee 
uh, but ended up in melee anyway, trying to be the hero, ended up getting bit and uh, died because he failed his save versus poison. And uh, I had him roll, you know, there's a little, there's a little chart I had that, you know, how, what's the, you know, based on the, the role, it determines the age of the snake and the, and the, the potency of its venom. And he rolled a 20 on himself and 20 was the only one that basically said instant death if you fail your save. And then of course he failed his save. So, uh, I killed one of the PCs in the very first session. Um, and so anytime that happens, you know, it's sort of one of those, well, let me step back and. Let me think about this. Let me see if you know that situation was appropriate. Should it have been avoided? Could it have been avoided? You know what what happened to lead up to this? You know this happens. I mean, even though you know I say the first session, but you know when I I think I mentioned this before too. But when we when I sit down to play, we play like twelve or thirteen hour sessions. So this was towards the end of the session. So he had already played, you know this this PC for you know ten hours. So this is almost like if if he died at the beginning of the third session of you know if if we played three five hour sessions he would be dying at the beginning of the third session, uh, so he was a pretty attached to the character um, and he died uh, and I'm not a I don't pull punches so you know when it happened the roles decided you know he got hit and I roll out in the open you know he got hit and then he rolled on the table and then he failed his save so that was it. Um, and the, the thing is the players didn't do anything sort of, you know, stupid. Like sometimes players do something really foolish and then they die and it's kind of like, well, you know, you did something really foolish. That's a learning experience. But in this case, it was kind of like, well, you know, you know, it didn't really, what's that? You were just unlucky that night. Yeah. He was just really unlucky. So, um, so that was, you know. Uh, it it was fun. It was it was a little unfortunately. It was since it was towards the end of it. It was kind of one of those things like, oh, you know, <laughs> we played this long session. Oh, and then you died. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, but you know, whatever. I mean, he just means he gets to make a new character and and join in next time. And is there a way that that you can turn that into a story point though? Sometimes if you make the death meaningful, even in in retrospect, yeah. You know? Well, so they they actually have a choice. They they made it to a town and they took his body so that they can actually. Um, the thing is that he was playing an an ogre magi, which um, is a sort of a it's a monstrous class. It's from the humanoid splat book for two E, mm-hmm. and none of the monstrous classes can uh, be resurrected. They have to be right. reincarnated, and so he rolled. So I had him roll on the table to roll what what type of uh, creature he would be reincarnated into and he would be reincarnated into a human. And if you're reincarnated into a, a race that does not have the same powers as, as the race that you had before, then you lose those powers. And the sure. whole reason he was that race was for those powers. So it kind of was like, Oh, well took the wind out of his sails. Um, so they could have, you know, they sort of had the choice of, of it could have been a storyline to get, to be able to, to get him reincarnated or, uh, to do something else, um, and we sort of ended it, and I I had them go away thinking about you know well do they do they want to reincarnate him and maybe go try to find some mage who could do a switcheroo and put his soul back into an ogre mage body or you know if he really wants to make a new character or you know something like that. Uh, it's kind of their choice. I'm letting it go. If he chooses to just make a new new character, then then his his character who died is definitely going to show up later. Um, 
may either as a sort of uh, ghostly specter sage person that can help them or as a ghostly specter sage person who it will not be benevolent <laughs> towards them. Mm-hmm. Well, and if he makes a new character, it would be interesting if you could find a way. Not not necessarily in like the normal cliche, oh, it's his brother, you know, <laughs> whatever. Mm-hmm. But if you can find a way to... To, or if, uh, not not you, I shouldn't say. If he can find a way to tie that, you know, mm-hmm. you're, 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 the new character was actually a bounty hunter trying to kill the guy, and now he's lost the bounty and he's pissed about it or whatever, you know? Right, right. Um, yeah, I don't know. And, I, I also, and, and, and this is more general for evil campaigns, because um, mm-hmm. you mentioned that it's an opportunity for you to explore stories that normally you don't get to tell. Because mm-hmm. you know you're always the heroes. Right. Um, I've found in my in my experience with evil characters and evil campaigns is that it, it actually gives the players a little more opportunity to be proactive. You know, mm-hmm. heroes are oftentimes reacting to the horrible thing the villains are doing and, and trying to stop it. But if you're playing evil, you're the villains. So right. you know, if they have a larger sort of goal of bring this god to prominence and whatever. Let you know. Sometimes it's fun to sit back and let them figure out how to do it. You know, yeah. what horrible things do you want to do that's going to help you achieve that goal? You know, and mm-hmm. let them be proactive. Well, so the way I do it is um, the way, at least the way I'm doing this game is I have sort of three tasks that they have to do for their for their patron, mm-hmm. and once they complete those tasks, they'll have gained uh, a level or two. Um, I haven't decided how much because it kind of depends on what kind of PC that this guy makes to replace his his deceased PC. But um, they'll be then high enough level that they can start doing that. And the the last two campaigns I ran with them were very sandboxy. So they know that they can pretty much do anything. But I need them to do these tasks so they can learn about the world because they're playing in – a, a time period and a section of the world that they've never been in before. So they, they kind of in the learning phase a little bit. Um, and of course they also need to know how deadly it is. So it's almost a really good thing that this PC failed his save and died because, you know, um, even though we played basic D and D, they never got in a situation where they had to do a save or die, believe it or not. Mm. Um, we played that campaign for six months and several sessions and they, the way that they took the campaign, they never were in a position to, to really fail something like that. Mm-hmm. And so it's really good for them to see, okay, well, we are really powerful, relatively speaking, but yeah, you can still just die of poison. Mm-hmm. So. Fair enough. And that's all I got. I haven't, we haven't, I haven't played my second session yet. So once that happens, it'll be a little more interesting because then it'll be at the point where they've completed those tasks and now it's, now it's okay. Where do they want to go, and what kind of signaling are they giving me about what kind of stories they want to tell mm-hmm. with their with their newly powerful creatures? So we'll see how it goes. Mike, thoughts, questions? No, it sounds cool. Mike doesn't care yeah, anything it's, about your game. I care rough. about it. it sounds cool. <laughs> no, it's it's rough though because I think it's going to be relatively short lived because I think uh, the next session they'll finish those two tasks and they'll probably run off in in a different direction and try to do something else. Um, but you know, they're going to find opposition wherever they go and they're going to get really powerful. And then they're, they're either going to sort of ascend to being avatars of the evil God or they're going to die. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's kind of, I don't know. It's really, I would, I would find it really, really hard to try to run an evil campaign. mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and I think 
that's part of the balance, right? And we talked briefly about this last time. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think that's that's where it's fun, right? Is that sometimes you can give them, okay, now here's the big overarching goal. And they all have that same goal. And as long as they all agree that they actually all have that goal, you know, that none of them are like, oh, yeah, I totally have that goal, wink, wink, and I'm going to stab you in the back later. <laughs> you know, they all actually legitimately have that goal. And then let mm-hmm. them be proactive and, and them design those adventures and those stories, then the evil campaign can kind of work because they're working together, but they're working within their own mindset, you know, Oh, I'm this kind of guy. I'm this kind of guy. So they're all sort of doing different things. Um, Mm -hmm. I've seen it actually work fairly well. I've also seen it completely fall apart. So it's tricky. Yeah. And it it could fall apart. I mean, there's already, uh, you know, one of the characters is a samurai. So uh, (laughs) the reason that he is working for that patron is that that's his Lord. And so he will follow, you know, he has his little, you know, we, we developed his little five point samurai code before the game and he, he cannot disobey his Lord and he can't kill his Lord. (laughs) And of course, one of the other characters is like, oh, you got to kill this guy. He doesn't treat you right. And, and the other, the other player is like, no, I, I can't do that. That is, you know, that's crazy talk what you're saying. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's it's got some interesting dynamics already because the the one, you know, the one player he's he's really uh he he's very much a leader and he wants to just take over wherever he's at. So mm-hmm. it's it's interesting though what what Mike was saying earlier about, you know, the players uh thinking that you're suggesting going in a certain mm-hmm. direction or doing a certain thing because my that guy, the leader, the PC, the player who I have who always Basically, his PC ends up being the leader and, and making the majority of the decisions. He's a very strong personality, but he usually DMs, mm-hmm. and this is one of the reasons why he is that way. And so, when I DM, he always is assuming, "Oh, you know, you're you're trying to lead us down this path. You're you're trying to manipulate us into doing this thing yeah. that you want us to do." And I have to keep telling him, "No, I don't. I don't do that. Yeah, you know, right. this is a. Uh, you guys are capable of. You know." Some some groups are not capable of playing a sandbox. They just, you know, my other group that play, is playing D and D next. They cannot do a sandbox. They have to be on a slight railroad so that they mm-hmm. have a direction to go. Um, mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. this group, they they will they can play sandbox, and I can go with it, and I'll just let them do whatever they want to do as long as they're having fun. I'm going to have fun because yeah, they'll I... make a story out of it either way. Mm-hmm. But this guy always he, he in fact he tried to convince one of the other players. In the last game, oh, he's trying to, you know, he's trying to manipulate you. He's trying to convince you to go do that thing, and he's just, he's messing with you. And I'm just like, no, I'm, I'm not actually. <laughs> I'm just telling you what your options are. <laughs> yeah, I have, I have an issue. I have similar issues, uh, than, and it's sort of come out of our conversations throughout the night here. Mm-hmm. Um, in that, I think there's a level of player expectation, like. Like you know, I, I was at a, almost six months or a year ago, right? I had them do surveys and I, what kind of players they are, and also I had them you know mm-hmm. indicate how, what kind of players each other were, and then what kind of play, DM I was and all that. And they all thought I was way more adversarial than I thought I was, <laughs> right? Um, and so, and I, and and that plays into like what, I think part of that plays into why my fate core uh, god game sort of fell flat is that they thought I was working against them, and that's not how fate core works. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a it's a more story focused type of game, you know, right, right. Um, and so they don't when I say no, no, I'm just trying to work with you collaboratively to tell a story and I th- present challenges along the way, um, then 
they don't. They, I don't think they buy it. You know, Aeon Wave. They, in fact, some of them said Aeon Wave worked well because I knew. You know, th- they knew that I knew what the beginning and the end was, and everything mm-hmm. in between was made up. But I knew where the ending point was, mm-hmm. and they claimed I didn't know where the ending point was with this other one. It's like, well, yes and no, because I didn't know what you guys were going to do. Right? right? Did they did they feel cheated if you didn't have an ending point? Um, well, they definitely wanted. I mean, you want it, any story, you know, you want a conclusion. Um, right, but sometimes open- that conclusion comes naturally, and sometimes you already had it in mind. Right. No, I had several possible op- uh, ideas of uh, sort of where it would end, and I right. may have preferred one over the other, and it didn't end up going that way anyway, so that's fine. They were more creative and came up with a solution that I hadn't anticipated, and, that, and mm-hmm. I'm okay with that. Right. Um, you know, but yeah, no, so I think they were just thinking that I was being adversarial and, and not giving them information, and there were several times they're like, well, I don't know, guys, I don't know what to do. You know, mm. our, our our paths are run out. It's like, no, what what do people do when they are faced with, you know, mm-hmm. you know, they don't just give up and, and let the world die, right? They, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. they yeah, would, come up with something. Right? Yeah, I mean, I've certainly seen it if it's too sandboxy where there isn't any clear option yeah, or, or it doesn't feel like this. And we mm-hmm. think like, well, there's lots. And sometimes they would go, well, yeah, I guess we could just go wandering off, you know. Right. That sometimes like saying, okay, like so far – I mean, the hard part, and I forget where I heard this, but somebody was saying, like, when you when you kind of, you summarize what you've heard from them. So as they're having conversations and they're saying things like, well, we could go back to the bar and talk to this guy. Then you write, like, on a note card, you know, talk to so-and-so at the bar. And then, mm-hmm. you know, they might say, well, we could also explore X. And you say, okay, you, you know, explore the, the minds of X, you know. Mm-hmm. And then you say, if they're like, well, we don't know where to go, you say, well, it looks like you have three options you know, here. You could talk to the guy at the bar. You could go to the Minds of X. And they go, uh, Minds. Yeah. Right. I, my problem, my, my D&D Next group, they, um, the problem I had with them is they said, oh, yeah, we love sandbox campaigns. We really <laughs> love that. We really, we're really great at that. And then they weren't. Mm-hmm. They didn't know they weren't. You know, They hadn't ever really done a sandbox, so they thought they had. And mm-hmm. so what happened was – they just had way too many choices. They had way too many things they could do, and they didn't know how to work together to figure out what to do next. Um, and they and they assumed that there was, you know, like if there were nine things they could do, they assumed the one one was the right thing to do, and the other eight those were just red herrings right. that they're right. going to go off and waste time on. Yeah. And that's not a sandbox. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's a mystery about what the DM wants you to do versus. Actually, having nine options, well, and there's a place for that style of game, and I think there, uh, there absolutely many is. There games absolutely go that is. route, and that's fine. Yeah. Well, and then it turns out that that's really where they thrive. They thrive sort of in that niche between a full-on railroad, let me run a published scenario where you don't have any options other than to go with the story, versus a full-on sandbox where you've got all the options in the world, but that means you have to be a little self-motivated and and figure out what you want to do and what kind of story you want to mm-hmm. tell. They're they're like smack dab in the middle, and they they run really well with the sort of like I'm running Dragon Spear with them, but I'm running it very kind of loosey goosey where you know they get clues from all these other things that are also happening in the world, yeah, and, they, right. and there's still lots of things they can go explore, but they're kind of on the main trail. They you know right. they met Istval, although that's not his name in my world, and you know they went to the Cromhold and all that stuff. So they're they're doing stuff that's within the bounds of the written you know Dragon Spear module but mm-hmm. there's a whole bunch of other stuff thrown in and that's perfect for them and that's oftentimes how i like to run my adventures anyway anyways i like to lay the, 
lay seeds mm-hmm. for multiple things, you mm-hmm. know, or you're on this one task, but while you're on this task, I'm going to, I'm going to seed some clues for like the next two tasks and right. what mm-hmm. order you right. pick up on them and where you go and whatever is fine. But, um, you know, so it's not entirely railroady, but it, there's, you know, the, it's, I don't mm-hmm. know. Yeah, there is actual choice. Trails it's not the, the illusion of choice, right? Yeah. See, the thing about a railroad is you can actually do a railroad that just has illusions of choice, but really no choice. Right. Mm-hmm. And then you you can do sort of a middle of the road railroad where there really is choice. You know, it just there's a little more direction, right. and then you yes. can do a pure sandbox where you know there's just so much choice. If the, the party the absolute can't pure out sandbox that, so. is hard, I think for a lot of groups that's just really hard to pull yeah. off. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, oh, I think, absolutely. I think, yeah, right. This game that I'm running now is probably the closest I've come to a true sandbox, yeah. and it's certainly. I mean, we're all. I think everyone's having a good time, um, but it's mm-hmm. it's certainly different. And I, I bet that if I went back to what I had run with my 4E campaign, which is much more linear, they still had choices, and and I still kind of you know, they had, there were NPCs that would react to the things the PCs had done, and the PCs the choices are like, are you going to kill this guy, or are you going to question him, or are you going to mm-hmm. you know. But it wasn't this kind of open world of here's, you know, 16 different places you can go explore and all this stuff. I think if I went back to the old way, my group would probably be like, they'd be perfectly happy with it. They'd be like, you know, and and they'd they'd remark about how great the Dwarven Forge setups were. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's way, way, way over uh, Sam's time. But we ended up sort of having a group conversation about other things that I think were were meaningful and worthwhile. Although... Uh, I've, there are some iTunes reviews out there that complain that, that I, that I'm too worried about time. Um, that's probably my fault. I think I got you started on that. Uh, well, no, the issue is, uh, and, that, and that was mainly to curb my ass. Well, <laughs> the issue, the issue on time isn't, uh, that I'm a, I'm a stickler for time. The issue on time is that we, I record in my bedroom and if the long, if I go late, my wife can't go to bed. So that's yeah. all you listeners out there. It's not because I'm a stickler for time and I don't want to encourage good conversation <laughs> because my wife needs to go to bed at some point. Right. So, uh, and, and don't we're we... already at an hour and we still have a, a voicemail to listen to. That's what I was just going to say. Don't we have a voicemail? We do. <laughs> so I'm going to play that here. And this is where it goes. At the like one hour mark, fifty-seven minute mark. Sweet. And you know, we're if, back. You, if you if you throw this to me, I can edit it because I'll edit out that whole B episode too. What B episode? Where I said, "Oh my God, there's a giant B in my house." Oh, man. <laughs> no, it's fine. I don't care about B problems. I just kept talking. <laughs> yeah, we just continued. <laughs> now this part I might have to edit out. Jeez. Yeah. Well, you're gonna have to edit it. Anyway, I'm gonna have to edit it here anyway. Yeah. It's fine. audio in anyway. And we're back. Uh, so he has a the issue of um, he's got a group. They've only been playing fourth edition. Um, they're real tactically minded. They've taken a year off, and now he's trying to get them back together. And he's wondering: Is it worthwhile to try to get his tactical fourth edition players to try out Fate? Well, you just did this. So, what do you think? Uh, my answer is. Um, if you do fate well, <laughs> you know, if I had, if I had started fate off with, um, the, the gods campaign or the gods session, um, I think the players would have been said, okay, well we tried fate. We're done with that forever. Hmm. Um, but I think because a lot of them had a really good experience with Aeon wave, 
Um, Yay! You know, my honest, my honest sort of response is: if you're going to do something with Fate, uh, with a group like that, start with Aeon Wave because it gives them high action. It gives them a lot of things to do. It gives them enough guidance to get really started. Um, you know, there's a there's a definite beginning and end, so you know where that's at. I had the advantage of playing in the game before um, running it, so I sort of knew where it was going and how to sort of improvise the middle part when I needed to. Um, you know, so I think if you can. If, if not Aeon Wave, find some sort of um, product that, that gives you that support. I think that's a good place to go. I found Aeon Wave worked really well for my group of, of D&D players um, because it gives you that guidance, right? It gives you that support and that help and that storyline, that structure. So it's not completely, you know, going back to our conversation of, of sandbox or railroad, right? It's not completely sandboxy. It's not, you know, making it all up as you go. Um, so the pacing is kind of there and taken care of for you, and that's a big help. The the action is there and built in, uh, and that's a big help. You know, so that's my suggestion. Is that I think you can you can sell them on fate, and I think uh, Aeon Wave is a good way to do it. Well, my my suggestion. Well, so first let me say this episode of Behind the DM Screen brought to you by Aeon Wave. That's right. Yay! <laughs> uh, I'm not paying um, for that. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, my suggestion is um, <clears throat> it's possible, but you need to set their expectations. Mm-hmm. Don't just say, hey, let's play this cool new game. Uh, it's a little bit different, but we'll still play a fantasy game or whatever. Uh, set their expectations that it's really story-driven and it's really about you know poking each other and tagging each other and, and compelling each other to do things that you need to do, uh, much less so than tactical – min-maxing your skills and stats and making sure that you're the best at a couple of things. It's it's much more about flowing with the story. And you can still be the best at a couple of things, but you have to flow with the story. And that's very different. So if you set their expectations, I think you can do it. And I think Fate is a great game, and I think you can do it well, but... Mm. If their expectations are, oh, it's just going to be tactical D&D with a different name, then it's going to fall flat. Yeah. Actually, one of the players who was who missed the Aeon Wave game but was instrumental in sort of the story of the the Gods game, mm-hmm. um, he actually we, – we only had really two combats the whole night, if you want to call them that. Uh, and he made the very poignant note of, uh, comment, I guess, that you know combat in this game sucks, right? Well, mm-hmm. I – I don't think it's combat, not a combat does game. suck, but I think yeah. he wasn't buying into it. He yeah, wasn't buying it, into it, yeah. that it's more of a him describing what he's doing and all that kind of stuff. You know, he's playing mm-hmm. the god of magic. He should be doing crazy magical things like, uh, mm-hmm. you know, I, I hit it with my magic use thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's not how Fate Core works. But that, but, right, <laughs> but that's what I mean about expectations. Right. He was right as a tactical min-max, certain powers work really well game, yeah, it sucks for that. Yes. That's not that's not what it's meant for. That's not what combat in the fate system, that's not how it works. So, Mike. Uh, I'm going to plug Dungeons of Fate again. I know I talked about it on a previous mm-hmm. one. Dungeons of Fate is a four-page, you know, a four-page uh, hack of Fate Accelerated that, that I wrote specifically to run one-shot D&D-style games using Fate. And I specifically tried to make it feel more D&D-like. Um, and one thing about it is, and, and I've seen this work with, I've, I used it for uh, Ravenloft. And um, I used maps and Dwarven Forge and everything 
with fate and it worked perfectly because you know you don't have to worry so much about like who's flanking who and opportunity attacks and things like that but you can still kind of set your zones and still have characters move from zone to zone mm-hmm. you can still you have powers and st- or stunts that are things like mm-hmm. you get plus two to attack a guy that's also attacking a friend of yours and then you can show that with miniatures right you can be like ah all three of you are over on that guy over there um, so you can, it, it's not nearly as tactical because you're not counting off squares, uh, positioning doesn't matter, you know, you're not pushing, pulling or sliding. Um, but you can still give it a feeling of, you know, a lot of people just enjoy, and I, I really enjoy moving miniatures around on a map, even if it's totally abstract. Yeah. Um, but that's, so that's, that's fate, fate accelerated, right? And I think the caller was asking about, fate yeah, accelerated. I'm, I'm going to be a jerk and kind of bundle the two together because they're okay. to me they're they're so close like they, they're mm-hmm. very close yeah i don't well, fake core is just kind of meteor to to deal with i guess i mean it's got skills and it's got mental yeah stuff. it's it's got more buttons <laughs> no, and levers that. right well, that's right. what i mean though it's it's yeah. got more buttons and levers so i think he's thinking that's going to give him the more sort of crunchy bits that would yeah, be well, associated with yeah. tactical stuff, i would so. i'd argue that you know other than kind of refining the skill set to, towards the world that you're in it's not it's certainly mm-hmm. not going to add anything more tactical in either case. Right. Um, but I think if you kind of custom make stunts that are designed, like it depends on how much work he wants to do, but if you want to kind of custom design stunts that add the tactical parts, um, you could, you could probably get away with some of that. Um, I know that, uh, Mike Olson, who we talked to, um, about mm-hmm. atomic robo and Jeff, when we were talking to you mm-hmm. about arranging your game, uh, I believe he is working on a, tactical miniatures based version of fate accelerated yeah i remember that or fate i mean man that'd be fate accelerated um so i think it can be done and and again i think i think sam's right you've got to manage expectations it's not fourth edition so don't pretend it's fourth edition um but you know i know that i've now run it numerous times like one thing about it is i've run 57 room dungeons in three hours Mm -hmm. so you can get a lot of action and, um, and I think that, you know, Jeff, you know, like I wasn't at your game. I don't, you know, I mean, you talked about it, but one hard part that I've noticed GMing fate is you have to have a ton of material ready to run mm-hmm. because that the action is so fast that like, you know, I know the nice, you know, we, we talked about four E battles being long and tiresome. Sometimes those hour and a half, that was a nice break, <laughs> you know, and right. it meant that all right. I had to do is come up with my two interesting encounters and I have to worry about anything else. And yeah. now it's like. I had to run 57, well, I didn't have to, but I ran 57 rooms of a dungeon in three hours. And luckily, I had read through the adventure, and, you know, it was interesting. So, um, Well, I think yeah. that was part of the problem I, with, with the gods game, right? I, I don't think I had enough prepped. I don't think I was ready for yeah, certain things. Yeah, you, you, right. It, it's, it's important to have a lot to do. Um, one last thing is on the tactic side, the, the whole idea of creating an advantage uh, which is one of the four action types that that you can do in Fate Accelerated and Fate Core. Um, that's really where a lot of your interesting tactics are going to show up. And that's kind of, you know, if you want to make the ground slippery or you're going to put up a wall of fire or you're going to do any of the kind of stuff that normally had a tactical component to it in 4th edition, uh, that all falls under this idea of you're going to create this new aspect that's sitting on the scene and that aspect may or may not have boosts and then other players or monsters can tap into that aspect for a particular move. It's not exactly tactics. It's more, you know, machine storytelling. Mm-hmm. But it, 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 can, it can build an interesting, multifaceted 
uh, scene in people's minds and on a map. Because again, you can you can if you have the materials, you could actually show those aspects. Yeah. So I, I I got away with with you know making people not even realize they were really playing fate by having you know a bunch of dwarven forge and a bunch of tactical maps and cool. miniatures. So it can be done. Well, there you go. I think uh, with the right support and the right prep and, and whatever, it sounds like we all say that you can get your fourth edition players to check out Fate. And if anybody else out there wants to send a question or a comment or a thought to us, you can email us at thetomeshow at gmail.com or you can do like you heard tonight and you can call the biz line at 919-BIZ-TOME. That's 919-B-I-Z-T-O-M-E. And I think that's our episode. Anybody else have any last things to say? Nope. Have a great game and call back and tell us how it went. Yeah, I'd really like to hear how that that works. Very good. Then I think we're done. Say goodbye, boys. Bye, Bye, boys. Bye.